Hello, everybody, and welcome to Ignite Radio Live. We want to thank you right out of the gates for helping us be named by Spotify as one of the top podcasts globally in 2022. I'm not quite sure what the criteria for that is, other than having an amazing wife, but we'll take it. Tonight, you'll hear about how Josh went from a homeless high school dropout to an attorney, to a college professor, to a politician, through the power of persistence, hope, and determination. You will hear about how Josh decided to stop looking at himself as a victim of his circumstances, and how his mindset went from why me to why not me. Tonight, we're delighted to share with you the incredibly inspiring testimony of Josh Williams. This took place at a Belief and Beverages night. These are wonderful evenings for our amazing, faith-filled monthly partners whose prayers and financial support are the reason you're hearing this right now. Please go to ilovemyfamily.us and click on that partner tab. And now, on with our program. Hi, my name is Liz Strang, and my husband and Lee and I live outside of Sylvania. We have eight kids, and our parish is St. Anthony's up in Temperance, Michigan. I'm a stay-at-home mom, and Lee is a law professor at UT. I had the privilege of hearing about Josh several years ago as Lee would come home from work and talk about this conservative, dynamic young guy he had in class. Then, this past year, I got to know Josh and his beautiful wife, Niera, even more on the campaign trail as Josh ran for Ohio State Representative for the 41st District. Lee and I wholeheartedly supported Josh because of his solid Christian conservative positions on issues ranging from pro-life, school choice, Second Amendment, religious freedom, and criminal justice. Praise be to God, Josh won. He won his seat, making him the first black Republican state representative for Ohio in 50 years. Josh's election win is even more powerful when you understand the difficult road he has traveled. Tonight, you will hear about how Josh went from a homeless high school dropout to an attorney, to a college professor, to a politician, through the power of persistence, hope, and determination. You will hear about how Josh decided to stop looking at himself as a victim of his circumstances and how his mindset went from why me to why not me. Please join me in welcoming Josh Williams. Thank you for that. I really appreciate that introduction. Uh, both your husband and you have been tremendous in my life. Uh, and I appreciate the friendship and the mentorship that you both have provided. Uh, thank you for inviting me to speak tonight. And uh, I was given the opportunity to tell you a little bit about my background, um, but it's, it's not a short story, so buckle up. Um, I'm Josh Williams. I'm a state representative serving my first term uh, out of District 41, uh, which goes all the way from Richfield Township to Savannah Township, Savannah, portions of Toledo, all of Point Place, Oregon, and Jerusalem Township. Uh, I'm a practicing attorney. Uh, I specialize in criminal defense. Uh, I'm also a college professor at Adrian College, uh, where I teach criminal law, criminal procedure, and constitutional law. And uh, but life was not always that easy. So, as you heard, I'm I'm a former homeless high school dropout. So, I was born and raised here in Toledo, Ohio. At the time of my birth, my mom was 26 and my dad was 68. So there was a little bit of a difference there. Um, my dad died when I was five from cancer, and I was raised by a single mom in poverty here in Toledo. 
Uh, eventually, we made our way out towards the University of Toledo in a set of apartments, and life changed a little bit. Uh, I, I was exposed to more cultures, more range of individuals, and my group of friends kind of grew. Uh, and I was attending Star High School as an honor student with a full scholarship to Ohio State when uh, at the age of 18 I became homeless and I dropped out of high school. So shortly after that, trying to find my path, I, I met my first wife, uh, the mother of my son Matthew, and I started working for the railroad next to the Jeep plant. And uh, along the way I got my GD, but at the age of 21 I fell 30 feet off the side of a train uh, and destroy my spine. Mm. So I have seven, seven or so herniated discs in my, in my back. Uh, she was nine months pregnant with my son at the time. So getting back to work was a priority and I kind of rushed it. And my back got worse over the next two years. So by the time I was 23, I took a nap and when I woke up, I couldn't feel my legs. So I was taken to the emergency room, told that, you know, I had temporary paralysis and I need to see some specialists. And at the age of 23, it took me down a dark road. So I became fully disabled at the age of 23 in 2007. Shortly after in 2008, I had my first back surgery. I had two back surgeries in 2008 and it was worse. I couldn't walk without the assistance of two canes. I couldn't stand up straight. Um, and I became fully disabled and laid in bed for six years total, but at that period, it was two consecutive years that I laid in bed. Um, doctors wanted to, to do more procedures, but the Bureau of Workers' Compensation, because I was an injured worker, didn't want those procedures done. So over a two-year period, I laid in bed in complete darkness in a room with the curtains drawn, and I blew up to 458 pounds. Um, they said give you the long version, so I'll give you the long version. What I distinctly remember about that time is I was so big, when I would get out of the bed, my bed had a divot, a permanent divot from how big I was. And I could barely walk to relieve myself, so uh, a little bit too much information, but I used to have to relieve myself in the plastic urinals and listen as my two-step kids and my ex-wife uh, dumped my urine in the toilet while they gagged. And I laid there for two years. And I went and saw every specialist in Toledo, and they kind of all told me the same thing. Uh, be happy you can barely walk with assistance. Collect your disability check, and here's some pain medication. This is your new life. Mm. So in 2009, after a year of trying to, to fight to get better, I gave up. And uh, I sucked into a, a pit of despair and hopelessness. And in 2009, I made arrangements for my ex-wife to take my two stepkids and my son to Meyer, And uh, I wrote out a suicide note and sat on the edge of the bed with my gun and cried like a baby while I was, you know, contemplating suicide. Mm. And at that very moment, my three-year-old son, Matthew, walked in the room and said he was hungry. And that stopped me from killing myself. In that moment, I lost a little bit of faith. I was always a religious man. My dad was a reverend. I was raised in the church. But I just sunk so low, I had given up. And looking back on it now, in the moment I didn't realize it, but looking back on it, I truly and honestly believe that, that God sent one of his foot soldiers in the room that day. Mm -hmm. See, something that told my wife to leave my son behind, even though I hadn't picked him up in over a year and a half. I couldn't care for him. I could barely care for myself. 
but something was telling her to leave me behind. And at that moment, my life changed. So for a long time, I looked at myself as a victim. I used to ask why me all the time as a kid. I spent a lot of Christmases and Thanksgiving by myself, crying myself to sleep plenty, uh, plenty of nights. And I, I used to ask God, why me? Why do I have to live in poverty? Why do I have to have such an older father? Why do I have to be raised by a single mother um, who had the intellect of a sixth grader? You know, why do I have to go through that? And he showed me the answers later on, but I, I was too naive and too stupid at the time to, to realize it. So at that moment, I made a promise to God that if, if, if he helped me get out of this, that I would, I would do everything, everything in my power to walk down a path he would lay for me. And at that moment, I didn't, I didn't realize a lot of this at the time. But God started to put some very, very special people in my life. So he gave me free will to choose whether or not I could get out of that bed. But he put people in my life to help me if I was motivated. So I got introduced to some great lawyers, John Palafka, great doctors, Michael Jajuga, and later on some great mentors. And with the help of Dr. Jajuga, I found some good doctors in Cleveland. And I started down the road to physical recovery. So in 2010, I had um, a surgery called a disc arthroplasty. It's an artificial disc. Uh, someone here said their husband sells orthopedic devices. I forget. Hopefully he sold my device. <laughs> Um, and that was implanted in my spine and it gave me some stability. It took away some of the pain, but I was so heavy the disc below it that was damaged herniated again. So I had about three months, four months of relief and then I was back, back in the hole again. So in 2012, two years later, I had a full fusion, but I was still so big, um, they fused my lower back to my pelvis and they had to do it in the front and the back when normally they only do it one way. So I have anterior cages in the front and posterior screws and rods. So when it's cold outside, I, I really hate it. And I can tell when it's raining. At that point, my spine was stable and I could feel it. And I started physical therapy and I started to feel really good. And I, I, told, I told my lawyer, I said, hey, man, I, I got to get out of this bed. I'm going to die in this bed and I got to set an example for my kid. So we started down the process of recovery. I had weight loss surgery in 2013. I lost over 100 pounds in the first three months, 200 pounds total. And then I really felt healthy, you know? And I'm like, okay, I'm ready to get back in the workforce. I can't just lay here and sit around anymore. So we did some testing and we knew I couldn't go back into manual labor. So they figured out that I could do sedentary work and I was a smart guy. So my, my lawyer said, if you ever got a paralegal degree, I would hire you in a heartbeat and any lawyer would be happy to have you because I, I become proficient in workers' comp law and he could kind of see my legal mind working. So we went to BWC, the Bureau of Workers' Conversation, and said, hey, approve this guy for vocational training in the form of college. And they said, absolutely not. Instead, they offered me a settlement of $100,000 for my claim and you lay in the bed the rest of your life. They said, well, you can do whatever you want after the settlement. I said, absolutely not. So for a year, we fought with the state of Ohio through the Bureau of Workers' Comp for me to be able to dig myself out of that bed. And it got to the point where we had to file, we had to look to file a lawsuit. We were threatening to file a lawsuit. Because less than 2% of all injured workers are allowed any vocational training. 
and less than a hundredth of a percent are allowed anything over six months. And when we looked at who was allowed two years of training, the answer was zero percent. So eventually they backed off and said, if you can find someone to pay for it, we'll continue paying your disability for two years. So a, a non-governmental organization called Opportunities for Ohioans with Disabilities paid my first two years tuition and my, uh, my books for my first two years. And I started college at the age of 30. And by the time I was 35, I had three degrees, including my law degree. So when I was finally given the opportunity and I had hope again, uh, the sky was the limit. When I hit college, a lot of my peers did not like me because I worked hard. I had a mission. I felt like God had placed me there. He, through his grace and mercy, he dug me out of poverty and out of the bed. And who was I not to give a thousand percent of my time and effort towards um, gaining ground towards recovery? So I graduated with an associate's in, uh, associate of, of uh, applied science in, in paralegal studies with honors or with distinction. I, I, I graduated with a bachelor's degree in science in paralegal studies with honors. I graduated magnum cum laude. And I obtained a full scholarship to the University of Toledo College of Law, where I went for two and a half years and graduated early. And Professor Strang was one of my professors. He was actually my first professor in law school. And I've told some stories about Professor Strang before. I, I won't occupy too much of your time. Uh, but it was, it was refreshing for me to see in a very liberal university a conservative professor uh, who could articulate his arguments with such authority that you couldn't refute it with emotion. Well, I'm cute. <laughs> Sorry. And Professor Strang, right? right? Yeah, I, I guess I spoke you into existence, I guess. But it was, it was refreshing to see a professor like him with a, a lot of our liberal professors. And I can honestly say that man drove my thought process forward and helped me grow as a student and as an individual. He used to challenge me to not only argue my position that I faithfully believed in, but the counter position. So he would hear another student say a position he knew I agreed with. And he would call me and say, do you want to counter that? And I knew what he was doing. <laughs> and I learned those skills to argue positions I may not believe in, but I need to be able to use logical thinking to get to a, a, a rational conclusion. And that's benefited me so much. And that time in law school was a very, very tough time for me because I'm a black conservative and a liberal school with a lot of, of socialists that couldn't understand how I could be a conservative and be a black man in America. But it was a testing time and I stood strong and it led me right into the career that I have now. So I graduated from law school and, uh, and got sworn in. But I'll, I'll back up a little bit because there's, there's a lot more layers to this story. So in my sophomore year of college, while volunteering in my community where I volunteered for 15 years even when I was disabled, as a secretary of a board for a nonprofit, a lady was kicked out of our league and uh, she falsely accused me of stealing football equipment from her league. And even though I had 2000 documents to prove my innocence here in the state of Ohio, they allowed her to go behind closed doors and secret uh, uh, grand jury testimony and lie and uh, 
In 2015, I was falsely indicted here in Lucas County with two felonies, breaking and entering with the intention to commit a felony and felony grand theft. And it took a year and a half for me to prove my innocence. And that case was finally dismissed and sealed in Judge Duhart's court. One of the reasons it was sealed was we went and petitioned the court to have it sealed. And one of the reasons was I was on my way to law school and I was applying and it was holding me back. And he granted, he fought with the state for a little bit from the bench and granted my motion to seal. Two years later, when I enrolled in law school, I walked in the hallway and saw Judge Duhart. He's one of the professors there. He teaches child practice. And I walked up and I reminded him that I was a former defendant in his courtroom and that I would be taking his class when given the opportunity. And I took that class. And it was an extreme honor for me to do well with a Democrat judge in my political beliefs and my conservatism to make sure I showed him a different view of black law students. And that was the only class I earned top honors and booked in law school. And when it was time for me to get sworn in, well, I'll back up a little bit. When it was time to engage to my beautiful now wife, Niera, we made plans to have a simulated trial in his courtroom where her family would serve as the 12 jurors and I will plead guilty to breaking and entering into her heart. <laughs> right? Right? So we made up a, a mock indictment along the same lines as my former charges for breaking into her heart and stealing her from all eligible suitors. <laughs> and we were planning this, and it was going to be televised, the news was coming, and then COVID hit. Oh. It was right in 2020. So we put it off for a couple months thinking that we had four weeks shut down. It was going to be over. And then it turned into longer and then longer. And eventually I'm like, hey, I'm getting married, man. <laughs> so, you know, I asked for a hand in, or I previously asked for her hand in marriage from her parents. And, and finally I proposed and we got engaged. And then I finished law school, took the bar. And because we're talking a lot about my Lord and Savior today, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you how, how blessed I am. So when I was studying for the bar exam, <laughs> my wife used to come out and ask me, well, when you fail, what are you going to do differently next time? Mm -hmm. Because I would only study about an hour a day for the bar exam. I studied one to two hours for two months for the bar exam. And she had friends at, at Michigan who were studying 16 hours a day. And uh, so she used to always come out and ask me, when you fail, you know, what are you going to do differently next time? And I said, I can't do anything differently. She's like, well, why not? I said, well, I have a schedule to keep on certain subjects, and I know it. I just, I don't know how, but I just, I know it. She's like, there's no way. So then with COVID, it got pushed back. When I finally took the bar exam, unlike other lawyers, I got to take the bar exam at home <laughs> online, right? So we would shut all of our sliding doors and I would take a section of the bar and then there would be a break. And she was timing it and she would time my sessions. I would get done. I would hear that sliding door open up and she'd be like, how'd you do? And I said, I did amazing. She's like, there's no way. <laughs> I promise you. And she would shut the door and I would take the next section. She would open it and be like, how'd you do? And I'm like, I did great on that one. She's like, there's no way. So when it was all said and done, she came out, she said, okay, now I don't, I don't want to be negative, but 
when you fail, <laughs> what are you going to do better next time? And I said, there's nothing I can do better. She said, I said, out of all the sections, there was not one subject I guessed on. I knew it 100%. And she said, there's no way. And then we got my scores back. And while I had colleagues that failed by 30 points and 35 and 40 points, my first time on a bar, I passed by 35 points in Ohio. And I can only give glory to God for that because he literally, it will be on the tip of my mind. And he blessed me with a brain that works that way. When I understand something, I don't forget it. Um, I had great professors and great mentors around that time. And he really blessed me. So I became a practicing attorney. We were get, getting ready to get married. And of course, generating funds for the wedding was a priority. And I would work my butt off. And I remember coming home about six months before our wedding, and I told my wife I didn't want to be a lawyer anymore. And like most uh, women that are getting ready to have a wedding and just married uh, <laughs> someone that was in law school, she's like, you're crazy. And I, I told her, I just feel empty. I feel like I'm part of the problem. I'm in a criminal justice system that I know is wrong. It needs to be fixed. And I feel like I'm just generating revenue off of other people's misery. Mm. And we had long conversations about it with some choice words exchanged. <laughs> and she convinced me just to truck it out and get through our wedding and, and reflect then. And I, start, I started teaching as a way to try to fill that void and it, it didn't do it. It did not do it. And after we got married, I went back, I went back to Christ and I prayed about it and I prayed about it and I prayed about it. You know, fill this void in my life. What is it? What am I missing? You, I know this is the path that you laid down for me. I just don't see the future. I'm going to continue walking down it. Do just like you did when I was in that bed. Put the right people in front of me, and I will accomplish the mission. I will walk down the assignment you have for me. And almost instantaneously, politicians started popping up. I would have conversations like I have for years with colleagues um, about issues and I would have opinions about problems and I would have solutions. And I, I met two Republicans that I, I had talked to for years in Sylvania in the prosecutor's office. And we went behind closed doors one day after, after court and just talked shop for a couple hours. And they were like, well, why aren't you running? And I said, I wouldn't know the first place to look to run. I've always been interested in it. I wouldn't even know where to go. I'm an independent. I've never registered with a party. I know what my views are. I'm, I'm a libertarian leaning. I lean Republican, but I, I, I've never considered really running. And they said, well, the first place you got to go is talk to Judge Corey. I appear in front of Judge Corey every day in Toledo Municipal Court. So one day I approached and she's like, okay, what judgeship do you want to run for? And I'm like, I just started practicing. I got, I got to be a, a lawyer for six years before I could be a judge. I said, I want to be a state rep. And she said, okay, have dinner with me and my husband tomorrow. And we, we had dinner at this, uh, this bar called Cock and Bull. And when I walked in, there was about 15 people waiting on me, including board of election officials, her husband, who's politically active, and a myriad of people. And within five minutes, they were telling me what district I was running for, what my opponent was. <laughs> right? And I'm like, whoa, slow down. I'm like, I got to run this by my wife. <laughs> And uh, they gave me 48 hours to give them an answer. And they called me after the first day, and I said, I'm undecided. So they invited me to a Frank LaRose fundraiser in, in Perrysburg. And 
it finally hit, and I texted my wife, I want to do it, and she said, I'm, I'm, I support you in everything you do. I said, okay, I'm going to run. So at that point, you know, I, I declared my intention to run. We pulled petitions, and we started down the path because I honestly and truthfully believed that it was a path that God laid down for me. I, for a long time, um, life was difficult for me, and I've always looked at it through this lens now that I can reflect on it in the past. See, I, I see our life as a path that you can walk down like a game trail in the woods. If you follow the path God has laid down for you, it's, it's a little bit easier. There's still hills and there's still valleys. There's still storms and there's still winters. But if you fall off that path, there's bushes and thorns. And you may eventually get to your destination, but you're going to get there with a lot more scars. And you may never reach your full potential. Every once in a while, God will throw a log in front of you to try to guide you back onto the path. And I, I used to look back on all those things that were in my life and, and see myself as a victim of chance and circumstance. And I honestly and faithfully now when I look back on my life, I see it as God gave me the opportunity to build skills and knowledge and wherewithal that I would need in this special assignment that he had for me later in life. And it was my choice whether or not to climb over that log or avoid it and keep going down the wrong path. And I honestly believe that going into politics was a path he had intended for me. And that's why now that I'm in the legislature, a lot of traditional rules, I don't want to say don't apply to me, but they don't, they don't threaten me. So I've already had conversations about votes that I may have, even for speaker. And now I'm arguing that the House violates the Constitution on a daily basis. Oh, jeez. Yeah, I can explain it in detail. And they, they said, well, this has been going on for a long time. And I said, I don't care. You violate Article 2, Section 6 every day. And they said, well, that may be true, but it's not good for your long-term political career. And I said, well, you don't know me very well. <laughs> See, this assignment has a two-year expiration date on it for me. And towards the end of this expiration date, I will look to God for his next assignment. And it may be two more. It may be four more. It may be six in the Senate. It may be going over to a nonprofit. It may continue practicing law. I don't know what it is. But you're not going to threaten me with a path that God didn't lead me down. And it makes me a little bit dangerous in our house because you can't influence me with that traditional uh, path. And they've noticed that. So I continue now, even as a state representative, to practice law. I still continue to teach every Monday night. And I continue to pray. Uh, because I think it was God's will that I got this assignment. And I continue to walk down this path faithfully. And I, I do it with excitement and joy knowing that uh, it may be my job to bring people closer to his kingdom through the legislature. So I continue every day trying to walk down this path. And I believe part of that path is coming here and talking to you guys today. So I appreciate your guys' time. And there's a thousand more layers to the story that I could tell you, but it'll go on for hours. Um, so I won't bore you, but I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. I appreciate the opportunity to serve many of you that live in my district. And I believe I serve all of Ohio, not just my district. And I, I will continue to be a champion for conservative Christian values in the legislature.
no matter who the speaker is, no matter who the majority is, and uh, no matter who's in control of my party, because I don't, I don't, I don't operate and I don't walk and wake up every day for a party. I, I wake up for Christ, and and I continue to try to live my life according to those values. So, uh, whether I'm practicing law or teaching or legislating, I, I think I'm doing God's will. And when I step out of that lane, I believe He's going to throw a log in front of me and show me the direction to get back on it. So, thank you guys. Josh Niera, I just want to punctuate. We are so deeply grateful that you are with us tonight. I'm going to pass this on to Professor Lee, who happened to walk in. He's part of your story and timeline to ask him his perspective when he encountered you and all that. I want to hear that, Phil. But from my standpoint, which of us are not experiencing adversity, difficult to mold? Uh, probably not the likes of which you expressed, but the message is resounding. God has a mission for your life. He has a mission for your life, and take the small step. Right? Take the small step and surround yourself with people who are going to affirm you and support you beyond politics, right? beyond ideology. Can we not be a people who come together and support each other for their excellence designed by God? Is there any identity that's greater than our unsurpassed identity in God? The ultimate battle that we face is a, a battle of identity. And you're connected to that, deeply connected to that. And I do think any professional people who are listening to this right now, it's an invitation to recognize there's nothing that surpasses knowing who you are and the place that God has put you to connect others to their identity in Christ, where it plays out. But deeply grateful for you. So I'm going to take questions right now, but before we do that, just as you were invoking the hallowed name of Lee Strang, um, we are very blessed that Lee happened to be walking in at that point, and uh, very beloved in our community. So, Lee, you got to fill it out a little bit. When you first encountered Josh, just tell us a little bit about your experience, because it is rather remarkable, the story he told. Uh, so, Josh and I met in property class, right, Josh? Uh, you always say that, but it was constitutional law. <laughs> it was my first. So, this is, how, this is how I met Professor Lee Strang. First day in law school, <laughs> there, there is a professor in my first class constitutional law who gave an assignment to all law students before he even walked in the door. <laughs> Right. And <laughs> you don't, you don't, you take two exams and it is about the constitution and it's a bunch of questions like, where can you find this? Where can you find that? Where can I thought I got there like three hours early. It was a nine o'clock class. I got there at six o'clock in the morning to be in the computer lab and it was packed. There wasn't a computer free. And I'm like, what are you all doing here? And they're like, we're in Professor Lee Strang's lab. And they're like, what? So law school is competitive. You try to ask a colleague, like, hey, what do you get for number 13? Like, I'm not telling you. <laughs> and uh, that assignment, many of the questions, the answers were, it's not in the Constitution. Mm -hmm. And we were all searching for the answers for hours. And then I walked into class and I got to meet Professor Lee Strang. That was the first time I met you. That's right. So th thank you for the reminder, Josh. And, <laughs> and, uh, and so Josh was one of my favorite students because you have, you have a lot of, People go to law school for a variety of reasons. Most of them sound, right? They want to practice law. They want to have a fulfilling career. They want to serve justice. Some people don't have anything else to do, right? So they're, they're, they're stuck there. And Josh was somebody who was there with a mission, right? And that was clear. And it was also somebody who was, who many, many, and Josh can vouch for this, I think, many law students are, are worried about, I guess, what their peers think of them, what the professor thinks of them. And, there, and there's some relevance to both of those, right? You don't want to be rude. You don't want to be obnoxious. You don't want to be unjust to other people. Um, and, and, and many law students are there to learn, what do I need to do to pass, 
pass the test as opposed to what do I need to learn to be the best practicing lawyer that I could be. Mm. And Josh was somebody who I could always call on. Uh, Josh would always have a response. Uh, I, I could count on that. He could always, I could always count on him too if there was in the audience of the classroom, if there was a view that was I thought would be unpopular among the students, Josh would be somebody I could call on to articulate what might be the unpopular view. So I, I always enjoyed having Josh in class. Just um, make a comment. Um, I, I had the pleasure of having breakfast with Josh and when he was running, and after hearing his story of braveness and boldness and suffering, I actually think you're a cross between Wyatt Earp and St. John of the Cross. <laughs> I think one of the maladies of this age, at the very core, the root, is subjective caprice. Thinking that what we feel has the capacity to dictate truth and good. How do you answer that question of communicating a truth for the good of the human person and codifying it versus overreaching and being dictatorial? Yeah. So one of the skills I learned in law school and along the way was to take my morals, my emotion, my personal beliefs out of my arguments and find a root and statute in law, history, tradition that I learned in law school. So a lot of times what we see now is um, this idea that what I believe internally must be represented externally. If, if, I'm, if, if, if I was born a boy and I believe I'm a girl, the world should treat me as though I'm a girl. The outward truth should match the inward belief. And uh, I can tell you now, plenty of my defendants believe they're innocent, but the outward truth is that they're guilty. So if we operated in that world, we would have a lot more not guilty verdicts uh, of, convict, of, of people that actually committed crimes. So what I, in the realm of, of pro-life, it's very simple. The distinction that is drawn between my beliefs and, and my counterpart is that it's not an emotional argument about individual autonomy. It's whether or not your individual autonomy affects a third party. I take a libertarian approach, limited government. I get out of your way, you live your life, you have to answer to God, not me. But when you start to impose on a third party is where I draw the line. And the distinction between pro-life and pro-choice is that they don't see the baby as a third party, and I do. So I believe that the governmental interest in stepping in to protect life uh, outweighs a pretend liberty interest that was not contemplated at the time our Constitution was drafted, debated, ratified, and enacted. So I, I merely look to our history and tradition. The constitutional document is where I, I, I find a lot of the source of my arguments because as a black man in America, I look at that document as, as so so profound. The way that I can get over the past wrongs that happened to people that look like me is that that document was drafted by individuals that were, were so enlightened, so profound that they knew they weren't divine. They knew that their personal belief was not the absolute truth and that they could be wrong. So they created a document that could change, that could be amended through a proper process. And Individuals look at that document as inconvenient now. That the Second Amendment is inconvenient, therefore we should just be able to ban guns. That um, the protection of life is inconvenient, so we have to create a new liberty interest that didn't exist before. I look at that document as a contract between the true sovereigns, 
the individuals in the representative states where they gave over some of their God-given rights to form a government that had authority over them. And in exchange for that new right, that new power that the federal government had, they were supposed to protect our remaining rights, some enshrined in the Bill of Rights and some left over un unenumerated, that were God-given. See, we've lost those roots. And now we believe, uh, what we believe subjectively is a right. We have the right to our individual beliefs and that society should automatically respect it without question. And that what we believe internally is the truth and to debate otherwise is bigotry. So we, ha we have a struggle on our hands moving forward. And as a legislature, uh, as a legislator, my, my job is, is to speak truth, to point you in the direction of truth. And the fact that your feelings don't matter, facts matter. Um, and unless there's a factual basis to a piece of legislation, I, I won't support it, period. And maybe I missed it. I feel like your story kind of starting from the beginning went on. There it didn't seem like it's a logical conclusion for you to be a conservative. And so just kind of, is there, when did that, when did those ideologies kind of become yours? Like when did you kind of start leaning that way? Because it seems like from your upbringing, your first jobs, like, you would have been surrounded by people who totally disagreed with you in that. And so kind of what, when did that point come in your life and why? Sure. So, um, one, I've always had my Christian moral foundation that led me towards conservatism, towards certain social issues. But given that I was, I was raised in poverty and, and was on many of the governmental programs that provide assistance, you would think that I would support those programs, which I do. I think they need to exist. But the fact that I put forth the effort, right? the hard work, the determination to overcome that. And when the government wanted to tell me, sit in the bed and I'll give you more benefits. And I said, no, I want to get out of the bed and dig myself out of this, this hole. I started to see that the government's foot was there for a reason. And it, it led me down a path to really start to look at politics. And what I, I started to realize is the threat of government is that government wants to be needed. They want to exist. So it gives them a motivation to make it where you are relying on them. And that's why government continues to grow and any effort to shrink it is always a hard fight. So I thought it was offensive when I'm dig, trying to dig myself out. I'm looking at other individuals that are able-bodied that want free stuff. They don't want to work hard because the struggle is too great. They, they want the protections of the Civil Rights Act with, without having to go through the Civil Rights Movement and the struggles that came with that. They want free housing and free health care without being the ones that build the houses or provide the medical care. It, it led me down a path to realize that government wants us to have this liberal view because it leads to more government. If the government's the one providing health care, they're the ones that are getting government jobs and the budget has to grow in those departments and therefore they have more power. Um, if we're giving them free housing, the HUD is going to grow exponentially. Um, and that's government's true purpose is to grow and grab power. And, and a lot of that I learned in Professor Strang's class that there's a reason the founders put our government in the three branches that there's just struggle between the three of them. They're always fighting for more power. 
And if you create that power structure correct correctly, one branch has to pull power from another one in order to grow. And that branch is not going to want to lose power. So it fights against those, those incursions, right? But as a, a people, the government has noticed that they can go to us and grab power from us. And we are just so willing to give it over. COVID was the perfect example. We were so willing to give it over. Um, and COVID had an impound effect, uh, uh, imp like a, a severe impact on the way I viewed society. I used to think that we had kind of our own interest at heart as, as a society, absent government. And I started, I'm like, no, we don't. We literally want comfort and safety. And instead of looking to Christ, we're looking to government. So instead of, the, the saying I always say is instead of looking to God, we look to the government. Instead of chasing Christ, we started to chase a check. And the government is ready, willing, and able to hand out stuff to us for our vote. And that led me to be conservative uh, and be a Republican. We've heard, I think, a powerful punctuation over the last four, five, six, seven years that it's not a problem with skin, it's a problem with sin. Now, I think that might be an oversimplification. On this side of things, it's been politicized, it's been weaponized. Let's just name that, got it. What are things that stand in the way maybe that, that might tap the hearts of those who aren't Caucasian to help them recognize what I truly believe is many, would, many more would be about the good? Permission to be bold. So, many of the people that God sent into my life to help me dig myself out of poverty and out of that bed, which I didn't dig myself out. He, he literally was a helping hand. Uh, the footstep poem is, is exactly the way my life was, right? I really thought he abandoned me for a long time. And I just realized later on, looking back and reflecting that he carried me through it. And, and not only did he carry me through, but he passed me off to others to carry me at times. And other than, other than uh, just, uh, Judge Durant or Duhart, um, each of those people he sent me didn't look like me. John Palafka is Caucasian, though. He's a white man, right? Uh, Michael Jujuk is a white man. My, my boss, mentor, and deep friend, Stephen Groth, who I didn't talk about much, who represented me as a criminal defendant when I was falsely accused and hired me as an intern and then a paralegal and then a law clerk and was willing to pay half of my tuition to law school when I found out before I got a scholarship. And I've worked at the same law firm I walked in as a criminal defendant for the last seven years. And now I'm in the criminal, de criminal defense section and, and every trial he has, he wants me next to him. Um, they didn't look like me. So the simple answer is, it's not to ignore that color exists. It's to know what has happened to individuals that don't look like you and give increased access to those individuals. So my boss, when he saw me, it reminded him of, of, of a friend that he had that looked like me that passed away. And when he had the opportunity to help me, literally, and he's Jewish, God put it on his heart, why wouldn't you? And he's been supportive since then. It's understanding that there's individuals out there that look like me that are motivated, that are ready, willing, and able to change and grow both towards Christ and socially and economically. They don't know how, they don't have access, and the system's not built for that. And it's literally taking a positive effort to go back and reach down 
And now that I dug myself out, my job is not to continue climbing. It is with every opportunity I have to reach down and pull people up with me. And the ones that are willing to reach and climb and give effort to overcome while I'm assisting them, those are the ones we help. And the ones that are content with staying down and saying, no, thank you, I'm fine, leave them behind. Thank you so much. Powerful stuff, Josh. Um, haven't been evangelical for, gosh, 30 years. Our great story is always about how God saved me, how God came into my life and I was born again, how I came to know Christ. Been a Catholic now 20 years, and the great part of Catholic thinking is, what did I find in my suffering? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, where my salvation came through baptism. What did I find in my suffering? How did God speak to me closely in the hours of my darkness? How did God speak to you when you're on that bed weighing 400 pounds? And, and um, in the, what did you take away from the beauty of your suffering? That suffering is real. That free will is real. And that he gives you the choice either to continue suffering or come towards salvation. And that's not just in your faith, but it's in everyday life. Everyday life. You make a choice to stay in a burning house or escape it. When you take that mentality into everything you have, everything you have, you know, I was in a long, I was in a long marriage with a lot of suffering, right? And it took effort and a lot of pain to walk away from that towards what I consider my marital salvation over there. So even in my personal relationships, it took a lot to get out of that marriage and walk away. I have, I have two stepkids from my first marriage that as soon as I, I walked away from that marriage, I raised them 15 years and treated them as mine and they haven't talked to me in four years. And I prayed and prayed and prayed to God after walking away from that marriage for him to send someone, not only someone that could support me, that could help me grow in my faith, but someone that was equally yoked. Mm -hmm. So for me, people in your life, it was a profound message I heard one time, um, that if you are a gallon, right, if your spirit is a gallon and you try to build relationships with someone the size of that water bottle, they don't have the volume to hold all of you. So you either have to reduce who you are to fit their capacity or choose one with a better capacity. And I took that into the next phases of my life and that led me to meet my wife, who I believe is equally yoked, has the same capacity as me. And I don't think we'll ever will either come to fulfilling the total volume that we have available to us in our each individual lives. But that suffering can lead you to a point where you either choose to stay in it. Sometimes you can even learn to appreciate the suffering and stay in it because you're scared of what life is like without the suffering. You're scared of, of not knowing what is, you've known suffering so long. You don't know what it's like to not suffer. I was on pain medication for over a decade and I had a doctor who wouldn't get me off of it. 
And I found, uh, during one of my procedures, I found a brilliant young doctor, another, another person God just randomly placed in my life. I was going to get a procedure done called radiofrequency ablation. One doctor did this side. He was my normal doctor. The other doctor, my doctor's on vacation, this young, brilliant guy. It was the other way around. He did this side. This young, brilliant doctor is going to do this side. And I tell him, he said, you know, how did the first one go? I said, oh, perfectly. I have no more nerve pain. But now I got pins and needles on this thigh. And I think it was from the radio frequency ablation. He told me, no, it was from this. And he, he told me the exact diagnoses, like walking, like walking past me in the hall. And I'm like, man, that guy's crazy. There's no way. <laughs> and I sat there and I Googled it and it was perfect. I'm like, oh my God, he's brilliant. I'm like, hey, I've been trying to get off these pain meds for years. This doctor won't get me out. Will you? And he's like, absolutely. If you're willing to go through the, the pain, the struggle to get off of them. I met that guy and he's still my doctor to this day. And I was used to the suffering of being on a 12-hour long-dose medication where I would have 10 hours of relief and two hours of pain until I could take my next pill. And then it would kick in, I'd get 10 hours of relief. And when it was time to get off of that, knowing that my body would go through a withdrawal period, the, the uncertainty of what it was like, I said, I, I, maybe I just want to stay in this cycle of suffering. And God sent me someone that said, you don't have to suffer anymore. There's, there's a path forward if, if, you're, if you're willing and able and you have the courage to step. And I said, absolutely. He put me on a schedule to step me down off of the pain pills. And I said, I want to go quicker. He said, no, we're going to do it over six months. 30, 30 days later, I went into his office and I threw him a whole bottle of pain pills. And he's like, what are these? I'm like, that was last month. <laughs> he's like, you didn't take one? Nope. I'm not scared. I'll go, through, I'll go through this suffering until there's a bright future. And I've been off pain. And now I, he even put in a spinal implant. We removed that. I, I haven't had a, a pain pill in, in years and years. Like professors didn't know. When I was in law school, I had a procedure done to put metal wires up my spine to send electrical signals. And I took an exam. And one of the students uh, tapped me before the exam started and said, hey, you're bleeding. And I said, oh, that's fine. And I was bleeding down my leg from a wound because I had surgery the day before. And I was in law school taking an exam. I, I wasn't scared of the suffering because I actually had hope that I wouldn't suffer anymore. See, that's the difference. Some people sit and are so used to the suffering, they only know its existence and they're scared of what is possible outside of that suffering. And me, I just had a different mindset. I was hopeful of what was on the other side because I knew I couldn't suffer anymore. I was at my max. I knew, I, I, I knew if I could tolerate this, what was on the other side couldn't be worse. And if it was, I could take it. I could take it. And guess what? All that suffering has gone for me, most of it. I still have, I, I think there's different stages of suffering for me. So I may not have spinal suffering anymore, but going down to the legislature every Tuesday and Wednesday, I suffer. <laughs> I tell you that. <laughs> so so ho ho hopefully that answered it. I'm an open book, so you can ask about anything. Pretty cliche question, but just the, because I don't think you can hear people's answers enough because they're all individual, but being falsely accused, for example, your stepkids not speaking to you, speak to the word forgiveness. A lot of people hold animosity. Like, I, I could easily hold animosity in my life. Right. I, I can hold animosity towards the prosecutor who didn't want to look at the 2000 documents I had um, proving my innocence before I got indicted. 
Um, but then I will be mad at the guy sitting across the table from me now when I represent murderers and rapists and I'm proving that they're innocent because I still go against the same prosecutor and I still go against the same judges and the same prosecuting office that prosecuted me is still, Julia Bates is still in office. And um, eventually I had to just forgive it because it was for me. I couldn't, I didn't have the capacity for that hate. I didn't have that capacity for that ill will towards it. I had, I was on a mission. And I still am. And all that was going to do was knock me off my path. And I had fallen off that path so many times. I had so many scars. And trust me, I have so many scars that I didn't have time for them. And my, my wife has asked me that question about my stepkids. How could, how could you go through that? How could you not hate them? How could you still have love for them? And it's, I don't have the time and the capacity to put effort and emotion into that hate. I, I have God has so much for me to do when there's so little time, I, I, don't, I don't have it in me. So it's more than just forgiving them for my, my own salvation. It's that God has put me on an assignment that didn't include them. So you have to be willing to separate from relationships in your personal life because you're on a mission for Christ and they may be on a different mission or they may not have received their mission yet or they may be off mission. Right. They may have a different assignment that are going to lead you apart. And if God has intended it for them to be back in your life, those paths will, will verge again. So I, wa I walked away from that past relationship. My my wife cannot understand why I don't hate my ex-wife. <laughs> she can't understand it. And I, I don't one, I don't have the capacity for that in my life. And two, I don't I don't have that emotion. I don't want to show that emotion. I don't have it's I don't have the effort. I'm drained enough. I give enough. Right. I get I that's just the effort I could put into that hate is going to take me away from the moments that I have to put towards good legislation, towards good teaching in my classroom, towards good relationships with my wife and her family and my son. That time and effort that I could spend soaking in my sorrow on a daily basis Every second you think about it, you're taking away from a second you can commit to Christ. So why give it? It took a lot of maturity for me to, to get there. Because there was a lot of, my, my middle brother is the person that sits in that sorrow, that sits in that hate and can never let it go. And I'm the entire opposite. I, hey, I let it go. I don't, I don't got the capacity for it. Like, but I, sometimes I don't have the will and I'll have that momentary burst if, you know, I get in certain situations, I, you know, I'll give a couple seconds. But, <laughs> so, 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 you know, I'm not a pushover, you know, sometimes I can't turn that cheek. Um, <laughs> but, but a lot of times um, I believe, that, you know, if someone smacks me on that cheek, I'm supposed to turn that other cheek. But if I'm walking down God's path and they're not walking with me, they won't have the opportunity to strike the other one. The distance between us will get so great they'll never have the opportunity again in life to strike me. It's available. I'm ready, willing, and able to take it. You just won't have the opportunity because I've, I've been given a different assignment, a different path to walk down. As you were hearing your husband speak, just candidly, kind of what was moving through your heart? What, what were your thoughts? And you can decline. You can plead the fourth or fifth or whatever. Just the fifth. But um, just, you decline. All right. Oh, all right. All right. I'm extremely proud of Josh. I almost cry and tear up every time because 
he went through so 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 much and that he gave you guys a long story and it's way more to it he's been through so 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 much and every day i look at him i'm like wow like you're still going you're still pushing and we're completely different god is still working on me because <laughs> a lot of the things that happen in his life i don't understand how he forgive and just move on and it's big things guys so for him to just dedicate his life to god and helping others all the time this is not a show like this is really him and it just does something to my heart it's helped me out a lot and i just i love him so much and i'm just so honored to be his wife and i'm so proud of him you've been listening to a very special episode of ignite radio live check out other amazing programs at igniteradiolive.com and we do invite you to support us at our main page i love myfamily.us help us out by clicking on that partner tab Ignite Radio Live is made possible by the generous support of a number of amazing kingdom builder companies. You can find out more at massimpact.us forward slash kingdom. But just to name these, All-in-One Payroll, Becoming Gift, Caruth Studio, Cronin Auto Family, Imago Day Video Productions, Interstate Commercial Glass, Isabel Financial Services, MFC Products, Resourcement, SJS Investment Services, and Turning Point Chiropractic. If you want to know where you can turn for awesome services with great reliability and a heart of faith, go to massimpact.us forward slash kingdom and consider becoming one of our business benefactors if you are in such a place. Abundant blessings to you and your family. Wait.